Welcome to episode 49 of History of the Marine Corps, the Second Barbary War. Our last episode summed up the War of 1812. We discussed war statistics, and I brought up many compliments paid to Marines for their actions during the war. We discussed some democratic changes in the United States, one of which being voting rights, and conclude with an overview of the Aldrian War. This episode gets into the Second Barbary War. This war isn't as sexy as previous conflicts, and was over very quickly. Although there isn't much to talk about compared to other wars we reviewed, it is still a significant conflict, and the United States Marine Corps and Navy were instrumental in winning this war. Thanks for joining, now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The Second Barbary War, also known as the Aldrin War, wasn't a lengthy conflict. The war's recognized length started on March 3, 1815, with the 13th Congress officially declaring war on the Day of Algiers, and ended on December 26, 1815, with the peace treaty's ratification. But most of this time frame was all paperwork, and the actual fighting took place within a couple of days. Barbary pirates have been around for a long time, and they've harassed merchants in that area for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years before the United States existed, and hundreds of years before Europeans even knew about America. The term Barbary went back to Greek times, and was the name used to identify barbarians. The designation was initially used to describe all people not of Greek origin, but slowly turned into a phrase to describe the nomads of North Africa. As time progressed, the tribes in Northern Africa started to join together and eventually turn into four separate states. Morocco, Algiers or Algeria, Tunis, which is modern-day Tunisia, and Tripoli, what is now Libya. Many Europeans and Americans would travel through the Mediterranean for trade, these merchants were wealthy targets, and an attractive prize for the pirates. Pirates would seize vessels and sell the goods, use captured prisoners for forced labor, use them for ransom, and extort countries for money. On April 10, 1682, Britain established a relatively good relationship with the Barbary pirates. They negotiated a treaty with Algiers, and were able to safely visit any port in the state freely traveled through the waters, and were guaranteed not to be taken as slaves. The Corsairs honored this treaty, but it wasn't due to their high morals. Britain had the strongest navy at the time, and they wouldn't be able to defend against retaliation from Great Britain. During that same year, France was able to inflict a damaging blow to the pirates. They conducted multiple operations, and minimized the pirate fleet to only about 25% of their previous strength. But despite their small size, they were still impacting trade. Europeans led another expedition against Algiers in 1775 and again in 1784. The Moroccan authorities signed a treaty on June 23, 1786. Morocco agreed to stop seizing American ships, 
the United States wouldn't have to pay tribute to the government for trade in the area, and both countries would barter on equal terms. But this treaty did not extend to the other three Barbary states, nor were they interested in peace. Algiers was much more formidable than Morocco, and they didn't have a reason to negotiate. At the time, they held 21 Americans as prisoner and used them as slaves. They wanted a substantial amount for their freedom. American prisoners made written pleas to Congress, but America was still new. The United States didn't have a central government capable of dealing with international issues. Algiers wanted $1 million for the prisoners. In March 1786, an American commissioner, John Lamb, traveled to Algiers to negotiate. He was able to lower the ransom amount from a million dollars to 60000 In addition to paying the ransom, Lamb demanded a treaty as well. Algiers would decline the treaty but was still open to the $60,000 payment. Lamb refused to pay without agreeing to a treaty. To him, it was pointless. Without a truce, America didn't have a guarantee that the same scenario wouldn't happen again and more U.S. citizens taken as slaves. He left Algiers without the prisoners. They would serve as slaves for seven years until February 1792 where the United States agreed to pay $100,000 for peace, $13,500 per year for tribute, and a $27,000 ransom. Unfortunately, this treaty did nothing. America couldn't defend itself against the Barbary pirates, and Algerians knew this. The following year, Algiers captured 11 American vessels and 104 men in the process. To add insult to injury, Algiers raised the price of peace to $2 million. The United States was able to negotiate the final amount to 600000 After the pirates blatantly disregarded the original peace treaty, making another payment was a complete embarrassment for the United States. As the years progressed, the cost of peace would continue to rise. Algiers called for gifts, ransom payments, and tributes. According to the United States Treasury, the U.S. paid a million dollars to this treaty alone. At the time, this was 16% of the national revenue and the country's highest expense. Congress authorized a permanent naval force on March 20, 1794, and approved the budget for six frigates. The Navy Act of 1794 had a clause that would stop the six frigates' construction if the two countries found peace but this would ultimately result in another slap in the face for the United States. Paying such a large sum of money was difficult for the U.S., so payments sometimes took the form of military supplies. In September 1796, the United States gave a 36-gun frigate to Algiers for six months' reprieve. Americans gave Algiers ships, weapons, and ammunition. Not only were we paying large amounts of money to the Barbary pirates, but we were arming them as well. Tunis and Tripoli were aware of the treaties between Algiers and Morocco, and the massive amount of money the United States was paying to the two countries. Part of the delivery was sent to Constantinople as a tribute. The new ruler of Algiers, Boba Mustafa, ordered Bainbridge to deliver the Sultan's supplies in Constantinople. 
Bainbridge was taken back by this command. This demand hadn't been made before, and Mustafa didn't have authority over Bainbridge. The American captain replied that this isn't possible because he doesn't have orders directing him to complete that mission. He pointed out that the treaty between the two nations specifically said that military ships will not perform Algerian Regency duties. Bainbridge had a point, but this didn't go over well with Mustafa. He told Bainbridge that he must carry out the mission or his crew would be taken prisoner, the ship seized, and Algiers would declare war on the United States. They left shortly after and headed back to America. Bainbridge commented, quote, I hope I shall never again be sent to Algiers with tribute unless I am authorized to deliver it from the mouth of our cannon, unquote. There was peace with the Barbary states for a few years. In 1812, the day of Algiers was Haji Ali. He was a violent man who took the place after two of his predecessors were assassinated by their military troops. A fate Ali would see himself before the end of the Algerian conflict. When the War of 1812 kicked off, a British envoy was sent to the Mediterranean to meet with Ali. A letter was given to him by the Prince Regent, and they sided with Algiers. In short, the Prince Regent expressed his strongest friendship to the day and offered protection should he decide to attack the United States again. On July 17th, the United States merchant ship Alagani arrived in Algiers to deliver shipbuilding material per the original treaty of 1795. When Americans were halfway through unloading the supplies, the day stated that he was extremely dissatisfied with the quality of the material sent and ordered the supplies reloaded and shipped back to the United States. He also demanded that the United States pay $27,000 instead. This amount of money was ridiculous and violated the treaty's terms. But this request is why the Barbary States Agreement was considered one of the worst treaties in history. The total amount paid since the treaty was signed on September 5, 1812, was around $350,000. The actual amount that was due was a little under $16,000. The day also commanded Tobias Lear and all United States citizens in Algiers to board the Allegheny and leave immediately. The day threatened that if the tribute wasn't paid and Americans didn't leave by the 25th, he would confiscate the ship, take the crew as prisoner, and declare war on the United States. Tobias Lear agreed to these terms and paid the money on the 25th. He also took his family and remaining Americans with him. In replace of Consul Lear, a Swedish diplomat was left to handle the United States affairs. The day's aggressive decision against the United States during the War of 1812 hit American merchantmen hard. But this damage wasn't limited to the United States. And Algiers' commission from the U.S. was pennies compared to what he was receiving before the war. The United States wouldn't trade in the Mediterranean for three years. During the war, Algiers would capture U.S. merchant ships and U.S. citizens with the prizes. The Barbary States, specifically Algiers, was known for its horrendous torture. U.S. citizens were undergoing harsh torture during their captivity, 
Without a diplomat, the U.S. had to rely on its allies to help prisoners. The U.S. consul to Tunis, Mordecai M. Noah, was assigned to negotiate prisoners' freedom in Algiers. Noah worked with Spanish and Swedish consuls and attempted to convince the Dey to release the prisoners. To grease the wheels, a ransom of $3,000 per detainee was offered as tribute. But this time, money wouldn't influence the day. He replied, quote, My policy and my views are to increase, not to diminish the number of my American slaves, and not for a million dollars would I release them. With the War of 1812 over, the United States no longer had to dedicate their naval warships to defend against Great Britain. They were now free to answer Algiers' threats. The decision to attack Algiers happened relatively quickly. On February 16, 1815, Britain's treaty was ratified by the United States Congress with unanimous approval. One week later, Madison sent a letter to Congress recommending a declaration of war with Algiers. On March 2nd, one week after Congress received Madison's recommendation, they passed an act declaring war with Algiers. And the next day, Congress released an Act for the Protection of the Commerce of the United States against the Algerian cruisers. Once the war was declared against Algiers, two naval squadrons were organized by the United States. One would be commanded by Commodore William Bainbridge and sail out of Boston. The second fleet was in New York and was commanded by Commodore Stephen Decatur. Only 18 days after Congress declared war, Decatur and his squadron left New York and sailed towards the Mediterranean. His fleet contained the Guerriere, a 44-gun frigate, which served as the fleet's flagship, the 36-gun frigate Constellation, and the 38-gun frigate the Macedonian. Along the frigates were the 18-gun sloop Epervere and the 16-gun Ontario. Three 14-gun brigs, the Firefly, Spark, and Flambeau, and two 12-gun schooners, the Torch and Spitfire. On board the Guerriere was William Shaler, who was selected as the new consul to Algiers and was to stay there once peace was established. Decatur arrived in the Mediterranean on June 15th. During the trip to Gibraltar, there were strong winds and rough weather. The Spitfire, Torch, Firefly, and Ontario were separated during the journey. Except for the Firefly, who experienced damage that required her to sail back to New York for repairs, the other smaller ships eventually met up with the fleet. The sight of the United States Navy caused a lot of commotion, and vessels in the area were instantly dispatched to warn the day that the United States was coming. Decatur wanted to make this a quick battle. He immediately sailed up the Mediterranean in the hope of capturing enemy ships before they could reach the day and warn him of the incoming American fleet. The first major battle took place on June 17th. The frigate Constellation spotted the Algerian 46-gun frigate Mashuda. The Mashuda was commanded by Reese Hamida, a notorious pirate, who had long been the terror of the sea. He came to Algiers as a boy to seek his fortune, 
and after serving at sea for most of his life, he had risen from the lowest to the highest rank. Decatur immediately gave chase in the Guerriere. The frigate was about 20 minutes away, southeast of Cabo de Gata in Spain. Decatur's plan was to pretend to be a British vessel, sail towards the Aldrin frigate, come within striking distance, then attack. However, the quartermaster on board the Constellation didn't get the memo. While other U.S. naval vessels were raising British colors, he raised the American flag and advanced towards the Mashuda. The jig was up, and the enemy knew it was an American fleet. They immediately raised sails and headed full speed towards Algiers. The United States Navy was close, with the Constellation being about a mile out. The Epervier, Guerriere, and Ontario were about a mile and a half out. The Constellation advanced on the enemy and was the first American ship to open fire on the Mashuda. The enemy returned fire, turned the vessel, and sailed towards the Spanish coast as an attempt to find a neutral port to dock in. She wouldn't have the time to escape. Before she neared the beach, the Ontario cut in front of the enemy's path and blocked her escape. Decatur took the flagship Guerriere and passed between the Constellation and the Epervier. He sailed so close to the Mashuda that Algerins used musketry from her tops to attack the men on board the Guerriere, injuring a few Americans. Decatur answered back with a broadside and caused substantial damage to the enemy frigate. The captain of the Mashuda, Rees Hamida, was wounded by a shot fired by the Constellation. He was bleeding out on the quarterdeck during this attack, but still had the energy to direct his men during this battle. The Guerriere fired another devastating broadside. This time, Hamida wouldn't be so fortunate, and a 42-pound cannonball would strike him, cutting the captain in two. The damage by the second broadside and the death of Mashuda's captain caused the remaining men to panic, and most of the crew went below deck. The few remaining Algerans who stayed continued to fire muskets at the United States Marines and Navy. The Epervier sailed up to the starboard side of the Mashuda, unleashed broadside after broadside for a total of nine, which caused the enemy to eventually surrender. This was a quick battle, and the Mashuda was captured in about 25 minutes. The Guerriere had one killed and three injured by musket fire. There were another three dead and seven wounded by a bursting gun, none of whom were Marines. The Algerans had about 30 killed. After the battle, Decatur captured 406 prisoners and the ship, which he would send to Cartagena, Spain, for the duration of the war. Two days after this battle, Decatur's fleet was off the coast of Cape Balos, not too far from where the captured Algerian ship was stored. The 22-gun Estidio was spotted. Again, the United States immediately gave chase. The Epervier, Spark, Torch, and Spitfire chased the brig close to shore and forced her aground after three hours of pursuit. Some of the Algerian crew was able to escape, but around 80 surrendered and were taken as prisoners. After this capture, Decatur immediately sailed to Algiers before the day could prepare for an attack. As the United States squadron approached, 
Decatur assembled his captains and discussed his plan. Best case scenario, the day would surrender and submit to the United States new terms. If the day refused, the U.S. squadron would open fire on the harbor's batteries and shipping. Decatur and his fleet arrived in Algiers on June 28. Unlike his predecessors, Decatur had the power to negotiate, and when he arrived, he met with the captain of the port to discuss the new terms. The first question Decatur asked the captain of the port was if he knew what happened to the Algerian fleet sailing near Spain. The captain replied that he assumed it was safe in some neutral port, to which Decatur replied, quote, Not the whole of it, unquote. Decatur went on to tell the Algerian representative about the capture of their frigate, their brig, and the gruesome death of Hamida. The captain of the port's initial reaction was that Decatur was making this up. He didn't believe that the notorious Hamida was dead and two of the fleet's ships captured. Decatur followed up with this story by bringing in the lieutenant of Hamida. This former officer spoke about the events, including the death of the Aldrin pirate. This news changed the Aldrin representative's mind. He suggested that a ceasefire be honored until they decided on the negotiation terms and the treaty signed by the day. Decatur denied this proposition and stated that the treaty needs to be signed on the ship and the United States would still attack Aldrin vessels until it was finalized. A letter written by the President of the United States was delivered to the Day of Algiers, notifying him that the United States had declared war against Algiers and would act on that promise if a peace treaty wasn't signed. Madison was expressing his hope that the day would choose peace over war. Quote, But peace, to be durable, must be founded on stipulations equally beneficial to both parties, the one claiming nothing which it is not willing to grant to the other, and on the basis alone will its attainment on preservation by this government be desirable. Unquote. Accompanying this letter was another written by Decatur and stated that there isn't a stipulation for paying any tribute to Algiers, under any form whatsoever. On the 30th, negotiations commenced. The United States' terms were direct and straightforward. America would no longer pay tribute to Algiers. All American prisoners were to be released immediately. Decatur would release any Algerian prisoners as well and the day would pay $10,000 in compensation for the ship Edwin and other American property. The last stipulation of the treaty was for the day to agree that all prisoners would be treated humanely and not forced into slavery in any future conflict with the United States. The Algerians requested a truce until peace could formally be completed. They only asked for three hours, but Decatur again refused. In response to this timeline, he declined and stated, quote, Not even a minute. If your squadron appears in sight before the treaty is signed by the day and the prisoners sent off, ours will capture them. Unquote. The United States would continue to capture any Algerian vessels attempting to enter or leave the harbor. Decatur agreed that the only ship he wouldn't fire upon would be a small boat flying a white flag. This flag would be a sign that the treaty was recognized and peace was established. Three hours later, the white flag sailed towards the Guerriere, 
On board the small boat was a signed treaty and 10 American prisoners. After only a couple of weeks of being in the Mediterranean, the war with Algiers came to an end. On July 5th, Decatur wrote to the Secretary of the Navy, quote, It has been dictated at the mouths of our cannon, has been conceded to the losses which Algiers has sustained and to the dread of still greater evils apprehended. And I beg leave to express to you my opinion that the presence of a respectable naval force in this sea will be the only certain guarantee for its observance. Having concluded the treaty, I have in conformity with your instructions to dispose of such vessels we might capture as would be unsafe to send home in such manner, as should seem to me most expedient, restored them in their present state to the day of Algiers. This was earnestly requested by the day, as it would satisfy his people with the conditions of the peace, and it was determined by Mr. Shaler and myself that considering the state of those vessels, the great expense which would be incurred by fitting them for a voyage to the United States and the little probability of selling them in this part of the world, it would be expedient to grant the request. Unquote. The United States was able to turn its worst negotiation into one of its most successful. Decatur and his fleet achieved peace in less than six weeks after he left New York. Not only was this a significant milestone by the United States, but it was one of the most successful treaties ever to be conducted by a Western country with Algiers. This treaty marked the beginning to an end of piracy in the Mediterranean. Two officers were selected to deliver this message to the United States, Captain Lewis and Lieutenant B.J. Neal. They were chosen because both men had married sisters, and with the war over, they were granted leave to return home to be with their new wives. They left on the Epervier on July 12th. On their route, there was a massive storm, and the ship was never heard from again. Two Marines were on board that vessel. Decatur sailed to Tunis and dropped anchor in port on the 26th. He demanded the day pay $46,000 in compensation for two British vessels initially taken by the United States but seized in port by the day. There were some complaints by Tunis, but they ended up paying. Decatur continued his journey. Next, he stopped at Tripoli, and Decatur demanded another $30,000 in compensation for British ships taken similarly by the nation. The price was settled to $25,000, and Decatur accepted, on the condition that the Pasha released 10 European captives he had in his possession. Decatur left the area on August 9th and arrived in New York on November 12th. He and his fleet were welcomed back to the United States with honor. President Madison and his administration gave their appreciation to Decatur and his success. Congress authorized $100,000 to be divided between Decatur, his officer, and his men for the two Algerian ships captured, even though they were returned to the day. Bainbridge was supposed to meet up with Decatur, but due to the short duration of the war, sailed to the Mediterranean anyways from Boston. Instead of attacking the Barbary states, his mission was to simply remind the Barbary pirates of the United States' strength, and he sailed throughout the Mediterranean. Shortly after the original squadron achieved such a quick victory, 
the sight of a second United States fleet was a successful message. Although American citizens were free from Barbary slavery, thousands of European citizens were still slaves in Barbary states. The quick victory by the U.S. provided motivation for European nations. After hundreds of years of harassment in the Mediterranean, Britain followed in the United States' footsteps. On January 22, 1816, the USS Java, commanded by Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry, left Rhode Island and carried the ratified treaty with Algiers. As the frigate pulled into port, they noticed a large British fleet anchored near the city. The British were negotiating their own agreement. English historian Edward Brenton stated, quote, It was not to be endured that England should tolerate what America had resented and punished, unquote. There were multiple factors why Britain wanted to suppress piracy in the Mediterranean. 1. Britain received many of its supplies for the Napoleonic Wars from Northern Africa and required that relationship. With France's war over, Britain no longer needed to be friendly with the Barbary states only for their supplies. 2. The Barbary pirates were losing their strength and no longer had the power to be useful commercially or against Britain's enemies. 3. With the war over in Europe and the United States, trade in the Mediterranean was open again. Europe didn't want to deal with pirates harassing merchantmen. And four, white slavery was a big deal in Northern Africa. This reason was brought up during the Congress of Vienna in 1814, along with abolishing black slavery. Britain sailed to Algiers with the mission of freeing an unknown number of Europeans held as slaves. However, the British wouldn't complete a treaty as well as the United States. Britain troops were not encouraged to use force, and instead, they offered a ransom for European prisoners' freedom. However, if things didn't go their way, the squadron was authorized to bombard Algiers. The British were successful in Tunis and Tripoli and freed almost 1,500 slaves. They weren't as successful with Algiers. The day was embarrassed by the recent treaty negotiations with the United States. The locals were angry the day agreed to the terms. One of the day's officers blamed Britain and stated, quote, You told us that the American Navy would be destroyed in six months by you, and now they make war upon us with two of your own vessels they had taken from you, unquote. In a letter back to the United States, Perry wrote, quote, the Algerians are extremely restive under the treaty made with Decatur. Considering it disgraceful to the faithful to humble themselves before Christian dogs. Unquote. Frustrated about not achieving the same success in Algiers as the other Barbary states, the British fleet left. The day of Algiers assumed that they were now at war with Britain. He started to prepare his defenses for an attack. He also massacred 200 Italian fishermen in retaliation. This massacre caused outrage in Britain, and citizens criticized the government as being too soft on the Barbary states. Britain responded by sending the 100-gun Queen Charlotte, a 98-gun Impregnable, three 74 guns, two 40-gun frigates, two 36-gun frigates, five sloops, and four bomb vessels.
When the British fleet arrived, they were greeted by a Dutch fleet containing five 36-gun frigates and a corvette. The Dutch offered their help, and the British graciously accepted. On August 27th, the fleet arrived in Algiers. The day didn't answer Britain's request for treaty, and at 1400, Britain's admiral hoisted the signal for battle. The bombardment was intense. For six hours, the British blasted the city, without interruption. Every enemy ship in port was on fire. Buildings were demolished, and the city was in ruins. The next day at noon, a messenger was sent to the day and presented the terms again. If the day should refuse these terms, the British admiral stated, quote, I shall renew my operations at my own convenience, unquote. Algiers quickly accepted Britain's offer and released 1,642 prisoners. They repaid the ransom Britain gave them for the prisoners and publicly apologized to the British consul for how he and his family were treated. Per the treaty, Algiers also agreed never to enslave another Christian. The bombardment by the British destroyed the Algiers fleet. Over 118 tons of gunpowder and thousands of cannonballs were fired at the city. The Queen Charlotte alone fired 4,000 rounds. No one is sure on Algerian losses, but the British had 128 killed and 690 wounded. This event would be the end of Barbary piracy. There were a few more incidents as late as 1827, but for the most part, the pirates were no more. The United States played a significant role in stopping piracy in the Mediterranean, not only with this conflict, but with the Tripolitan War we discussed a while back. Although we didn't get into the Marines' actions specifically, Marines were present in the Mediterranean and provided the constant musket fire they were so good at doing. This battle wasn't the most exciting from a Marine Corps historical perspective. However, it marked the end of an era for piracy in the Mediterranean. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we discuss the next conflict. I'm debating where to head next. It's between the Sumatran Expedition, the Creek Seminole Indian War, or the Mexican War. As we progress through Marine Corps history, I'll be looking for input on what to talk about next especially as we head into more complex conflicts like the World Wars. I'm starting a Patreon page that will provide listeners an opportunity to provide input, and I'll have that up by early next year. Until then, if you have a preference on the Sumatran Expedition, Creek Seminole Indian War, or the Mexican-American War, shoot me an email at robert at historyofthemarinecorps.com and let me know what it is. We'll cover all three eventually, it's just a matter of which one I'll cover first. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.